One of the things I love about watching wildlife is the anticipation. Being outdoors in a beautiful location, looking across water, quietly waiting for something to happen. A splash, a rustle in the bushes, or, if you're lucky enough, a direct encounter with an animal. You might see nothing, or you could be treated to something spectacular. It's a great feeling to sit still, allowing your senses to take over and to simply wait. You'll suddenly catch movement deep in the willow herb on the island there, or movement along the edge of the bank, or ripples coming out from the water as they're feeding at the edge. Welcome to Waterlands, a series brought to you by WWT. I'm Megan McCubbin, a zoologist and conservationist, and this series is a journey through some of the richest habitats on Earth. Ponds. They are incredibly special places, full of life. In this episode, we're looking at one particular pond animal, or should I say, looking for them. And what we're in search of, over a hundred years ago, was one of the inspirations for Kenneth Graham's book, The Wind in the Willows. Because Ratty, who lives on the riverside, hangs around with Mole and Mr Toad, who rows a boat, who is affable, astute and routine-loving, isn't a rat at all. Ratty is a water vole, which just so happens to be one of the cutest, fluffiest, most wonderful animals around. A quintessential pond animal. If you disturb a water vole, what they tend to do is jump into the water and making a very, very loud plop noise. So if you are walking around ponds and lakes and you hear a loud plop, you might want to have a little bit of a look around. Water voles used to be a common sight at ponds. They've always been shy, but with patience, you'd see one. Jumping into a pond, swimming through the water with their heads above the surface, or scurrying down into their burrow, dug into the banks of a river or pond. When The Wind and the Willows was written, there were over 8 million individuals living amongst our ponds, rivers and streams. But devastatingly, since the 1970s, their numbers have dropped by over 90%, and they are now endangered. However, not all hope is lost. They are still out there, going about their daily lives and reintroduction programmes are underway across the country, which is a huge relief for those who care so deeply about wildlife. To see one is fantastic, so we're going to find out about some of the work being done to help water voles, and we're with someone who has been watching these animals her whole life. It's very subtle movement I'm looking for. It's just a, a, you know, a little clue, and then I'll see the water vole. <laughs> I just saw a leaf um, vibrating and, and was really excited for a minute. It's at the bottom there, and that could be a sign of a waterfall moving the leaves, but I've realised there are bees above and moving the vegetation. So you have little instances like that where you become excited. Joe Cartmel is a true waterfall champion, having observed them for seven decades. She's surveyed them, she blogs about them, she tweets about them and you'll often find her at a pond near her home, waiting. We joined her on a hot, late summer's day. We're in Oxfordshire by a lovely village pond. It's quite a quiet village. There's a church across the road. 
the pond is a fair size and it's spring-fed. This pond has a beautiful willow tree, weeping willow. I often come and sit under the willow quietly. In the centre of the pond there's this lovely island where uh, they breed. It's, it's covered in willow herbs, some purple loosestrife. So that's where I've seen their young um, coming out of burrows. And the adults feed all the way around the edge of the pond. Uh, unfortunately, at the moment, there are eight ducks, a mum and her seven now adult-sized ducklings, which has put the waterfalls off. So I arrive here about late March, usually, just before the breeding season. They start burrowing, and they have several chambers in their burrows. One is a latrine area, one is where they store their food, and one is a sleeping, a bit like us, a sleeping chamber. You know, it's rather, rather charming. I personally love water voles. I am always on the lookout for them whenever I think I'm in prime vole habitat. My first memory of seeing one, and I say that hesitantly because I didn't actually see it at all, was on a riverbank in Hampshire. I was walking along when I heard a very distinctive plopping sound. I quickly turned my head, but the water vole was too fast. It had vanished, leaving only ripples behind it. These shy creatures like to stay hidden, so they often jump into the water to avoid detection. Nevertheless, I quietly walked closer to the bank and saw an entrance to its burrow confirming what the sound was. I was very excited to know that it was there, even if I didn't get to see it firsthand. I think it's their features which are one of the main attractions. They have these really beady black eyes. They don't see so well, but they don't miss much either, partly because they're hearing, but they do catch sudden movement. They need their whiskers, I guess, for what, in the burrow when it's dark, they can tell when they're at the burrow's edge. Their teeth are high in iron because they gnaw a lot. They have to have very strong teeth like beavers, so their teeth are orangey. I've seen their teeth. Water voles are also nervy and a bit risk averse but you can understand that when you consider the number of predators that they have. They're at the bottom of the food chain, so most things will take them. You know, fox, owl, heron. I've seen a cat, sadly, a domestic cat take one, a young vole here, which I couldn't rescue. I think if a water vole feels at ease, a bit like us, its, it's pace is not so hurried. If it suddenly becomes spooked by either a noise or, or spotting something, it'll suddenly dive into the water. But if you stand quietly, that's when the wildlife feel more at ease, I think, you know, if you're not looking threatening. I've had them within about a foot or two foot of me. And normally you won't get that if you're lively or making a noise, but they'll feel so confident they'll come up very close. Jo has a lifetime's worth of knowledge about water voles. She's loved them since her first encounter at the age of six. A high point of a childhood spent playing in chalk streams, messing around in meadows and peering into ponds. I was with my mum walking to school. We had to go over the, the bridge of this chalk stream on the way to school and I saw this small rat-sized animal, they're about the same size as a rat, and said, what's that mum? And she said, that's a water rat, because in those days they were called water rats. 
Their name was later changed to avoid confusion because they were being persecuted because people mistook them for rats. And I was allowed to go down to the stream on my own. I was quite a sensible kid and it wasn't, the water wasn't deep, so I'd go with my little net to fish with and to look at the waterfalls. And they found their way into my heart at that moment. They were just so charming. That was a programme called Tales of the Riverbank, which was shown when I was quite young. And I think that made me feel that it was okay for me to have this adoration of a waterfall, even though my cousin and sister didn't quite <laughs> understand my fascination. So I spent my time by the brook watching waterfalls at the age of six, looking at the grasshoppers and butterflies and wildflowers. That bond then becomes very deep, becomes part of you and you feel more at ease when you kind of immerse yourself in nature again um, because it just is very peaceful. And as a kid I was bullied because of being quiet and um, it was a refuge. While Jo scans the pond for signs of her beloved water voles, let's take the opportunity to learn a little more about them. Daniel Foreman is an associate professor at Swansea University, where one of his favourite things to study is, you guessed it, dragonflies. Just kidding, it's water voles. I've been very fortunate to spend a lot of time studying water voles, but the, the most exciting and most interesting occasion was actually watching a water vole build a nest above ground, which they sometimes do in environments which are prone to flooding. Um, and I spent three days from a boardwalk watching this water vole repurpose a moorhen's nest into its own nest and then had a litter of, of young in them. So that was absolutely brilliant to be able to see and, and yeah, an absolute privilege. Seeing a water vole today is much more difficult than in the past. Water voles were once one of our most common rodents. A century ago, when Kenneth Graham created his water vole character Ratty, there would have been around 8 million of them. But after World War II, there have been numerous threats causing their numbers to plummet to approximately 130,000 today. The water vole has been Britain's fastest declining mammal, and part of that has been due to changes in our wetlands. Water voles were actually found uh, over a wide range of, of landscapes across Britain. But unfortunately, just after the Second World War, uh, we started putting a lot of agriculture in our wetlands, where obviously water voles, uh, it, the name means they live near water. So obviously any wetland environment, which is great for growing crops, unfortunately is the home of water voles. Um, through time, we've had the escape of American mink, which were kept in the United Kingdom uh, as part of the fur trade. Various individuals have escaped and have established populations in the United Kingdom. And they, unfortunately, as well, predate water voles. So they're partly responsible for localised extinctions. But the water vole itself actually has quite a number of predators that are native as well. So it's still a hard life for these animals, particularly if they don't have vegetation to play around in around the ponds. 
It's a real shame, isn't it, that they are kind of have at least faced threats from almost every single angle. And of course, yes, obviously there are native predators, but they have always dealt with native predators. And it really is the agriculture, the invasive species, perhaps even climate change now taking its grip that could continue to cause an issue for these little guys. Oh, absolutely. Um, they, they still continue to be highly threatened. And it's a, a great shame because they are really a magnificent animal, which I very much hope that future generations are able to actually see and enjoy. And there's loads of locations that you can still see these animals. Today, there is a lot of work going on to look after the remaining water voles we have in this country. Farmers are being encouraged to manage watercourses and drainage ditches with nature in mind. Buffer strips are being planted beside waterways. All sorts of things are being tried to restore and protect their environment. And there has also been a huge effort to reintroduce water voles back to their former range, which has had major success. I was recently filming uh, a population that had just been reintroduced uh, near Warminster and the population seemed to almost be showing signs that they could be breeding, which is fantastic news. Absolutely. The key being that um, many of the problems that the water voles would have faced in those environments being addressed before those water voles are actually released to give them a good chance of actually settling into those environments. It's about learning from lessons in the past and, and not being afraid to try, try different ways of looking at our landscape and managing it, which includes water voles, beavers and a whole myriad of other organisms that can help us make our, our UK environment a lot more resilient and robust, not just for us, but for the biodiversity that we share uh, this wonderful place with. It was the water voles decline which prompted Joe Cartmel to have an even deeper interest in the species and become a water vole champion. Her passion is to share knowledge and encourage others to love them. I was doing water vole surveys and um, when I was told by the person who trained me, she was in tears telling me you know, that they were in steep decline and they were at threat of extinction. It wasn't a happy moment for me when I saw the domestic cat kill a young waterfall here. It, the young waterfall, it went through the hedge over there. I shouted and tried to obviously get it to drop the waterfall, but it, it went through into the garden and that was it. And never saw it again. Um, you know, your heart breaks somewhat and it's gutting because you know that each one matters just felt I had to do something to raise awareness of this decline nationally if I could. Thankfully, someone invited me on Twitter and <laughs> that was it. You know, I thought I'd call myself at Water Bowl. And so I have two uh, blogs. One is at nearbywild.co.uk uh, where I, I blogged about water voles there because water voles should be in our nearby wild, in our ponds and streams and rivers. And also I have at waterfall.uk where I talk more specifically about water voles and how to manage the habitat for them. Because over winter, there's around a 70% mortality rate. So, you know, <laughs> that's very serious, isn't it? When you've only got about 132,000 across the country. So I'd be absolutely gutted, inconsolable if they became extinct. It seems a, a worthwhile thing to be a waterfall champion. It feels like, you know, when I'm no longer here, hopefully the website will continue when I'm not here and 
the stories there will help people to hopefully to, to love the species that I love too. The Oxfordshire pond Joe is waiting by has many of the things water voles need to thrive. The plants they love, clean water, secluded places to burrow, but the ducks are, unfortunately, still keeping the water voles away. I can show you, look, there's a burrow, an exposed waterfall burrow, so they will come up and feed and then drop down. And on the island there as well, there are burrows. I saw one appear out of a burrow, but if they hear a noise that suddenly spooks them or, or see something, then they will dive into the water, either swim quickly to, into a burrow or kick up the mud on the surface of the water, which will completely conceal them. Then you can't see them swim into that underwater burrow, which is really useful if you've got a predator pursuing you. They just can't see where you've gone. Waterfalls need about two to three metres of uncut vegetation around the edge of a pond or, or along a stream because they um, need to consume 80% of their body weight in food each day. That's a lot of <laughs> food. <laughs> and a breeding female needs to eat about double that amount. I've seen them eating the um, bulrush, flag iris, purple strife, willow herb and the woodier the stem I think the more they like it because that will help to wear their teeth down because they're rodents their teeth grow constantly so they they need to constantly you know gnaw but I think it was their very characterful little face that caught me they have a blunt muzzle and their ears are sort of hidden they do have a, a very cute face and I, I think this must have inspired Kenneth Graham to include a ratty, uh, the waterfowl, in his Wind in the Willows, along with Toad and Mole. The Wind in the Willows is an all-time classic book. No matter what age you are, you can appreciate the writing and the characters within its pages. The Mole, the Badger, the Toad, the Otter, and of course, Ratty, the waterfowl. Their adventures along the riverbanks were always inspiring and thought-provoking. I grew up very aware of water voles and their conservation, so I always knew that Ratty was a water vole and not a rat. This was a fact that I would always proudly share with my nan whenever she brought the book out at bedtime. The first time I really saw a water vole was a week after I heard that plop in the river. I had returned days later and sat waiting in a bush, a typical weekend activity for any nature-loving child, until I managed to get a glimpse. It was worth every minute of waiting in silence as a twitching brown nose emerged from the vegetation, followed by its plump round body. It sniffed the air and scuttled off on an adventure. It lived up to the character Ratty from the book and so much more. As I learnt through my experience, but also from listening to people like Joe and Dan, you really have to work to see one. It, it's very unusual to see water voles. You can be lucky and it's knowing about where to go. With, but one of the things you will find are the field signs. So a lot of the time these animals are trying to find lots of nice grasses and things like that. Uh, and they'll take down quite large stands of vegetation, believe it or not, and create these neat little piles of vegetation. So they're like farming this little mini environment next to ponds and wetlands. 
my favourite thing is looking for the grass that they've cut because they always cut it at a 45 degree angle. They're quite chunky animals and they do have these impressive teeth, uh, the front teeth, and they're really, really good at nipping off very, very tough vegetation at this 45 degree angle. So you can use that to sort of see whether or not voles have been actually around nibbling quite close to the ground. You have to look sometimes. Yeah, I have to admit, Dan, I've been cut, uh, caught out a few times actually lying flat on the ground looking at the, the angular grass to see whether I think it could have been, you know, a water bowl or something else that has been nibbling on it. Um, but, and, you know, you get some strange looks when people walk past and you've got your head at the side of a pond, but. I would say really worth it. Yeah, it's always good to have a look. Even if you don't find them, that's part of the thrill of looking. Sometimes there is a bit of a confusion with rats, but the two actually do look quite different, don't they? Yeah, they do. um, There are some major differences between them. One of the first differences really is the shape of their faces. Uh, Brown rats have quite a long pointy face, whereas voles tend to have what we describe as a blunt, more rounded face. It looks as though it's a mouse that's run into a brick wall and had its nose squashed up a little bit. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) And uh, the colour of them can be quite different between water voles and brown rats. Water voles can actually be quite a variety of different colours, but are usually brown, sort of gingery red-brown colour, although they can be uh, jet black in certain parts of the country as well, whereas your your brown rat is grey-brown in colour. Brown rats also have very, very Mickey Mouse ears, I think is the best way of describing them, really prominent big pink ears. Whereas for all vole species, they actually have very, very small ears, which are actually quite hard to see on it. So if you can see a rat that doesn't have ears, that may well be a water vole. And you will see and hear them. You can hear these animals perhaps before you can see them. It's great to actually just sometimes close your eyes when you're next to a pond and your sense of smell will enhance and you'll hear uh, you'll hear different things but you'll smell all the lovely fragrances from the herbs that you might have walked on as you walk towards the the ponds lovely little scents that you've may, maybe not appreciated before but um when they're in a reed bed eating reed mace or other wetland plants they do actually make very very loud crunching noises it's like eating a carrot i hear this noise Um, And they're very persistent in doing it. So, you know, keep your ears open and just focus on where that sound might be. And who knows, even if it's not a water roll, it's something else doing something interesting. While you're waiting for a water roll, listening for that distinctive crunch or plop as it dives into the water, there are so many other things to look out for. Every pond is different, and each pond, no matter how small, has variety in it. The fact that two-thirds of all freshwater species at some point use a pond for various things, I mean, it's just fantastic. You know, there's so many different types of ponds that there's a space for lots of different animals to to live in, and I think that's what makes them so important for such a, a range of wildlife. Ellie Jones is in charge of WWT's Waterscapes projects. She's creating and restoring whole landscapes filled with a mosaic of different wetlands, like rivers, streams, ditches, and of course, ponds. Restoring and connecting these freshwater wetlands is great for water voles, as they can move about and live in all these habitats. But of course, what's good for this species has so many benefits for a whole range of wetland wildlife. Nature recovery, but at a landscape scale. Because although it's great to reintroduce water voles, we need to create and restore more places where they can flourish. 
And that's what we need more of. Healthy waterscapes offering a home for all the remarkable wildlife which lives in wetlands. Ponds have been around for millions of years. So we know that the species that we have in them have adapted to those conditions. I think that's partly what makes them special. The other thing, though, is that ponds aren't just one thing. You get completely different um, characteristics of ponds, depending on whether you're in the lowlands or uplands. Soil type is important. Some ponds are deep and they hold water year round. Some are shallow and dry out. Some are shaded, some aren't shaded. Yeah, it's such an important diversity. Let's talk a little bit about all the wildlife that can be found in in one singular one. Okay, um, let's dive to the bottom of the pond then. The place where you find all your leaf litter, the dead animal bits and bobs, There's not much light down here and there's not much oxygen either. So what you're finding at this depth are the decomposers and the scavengers. Uh, A rat-tailed maggot, for example, which doesn't sound particularly lovely, but actually... Oh, I like that. (laughs) They look like little sausages with tails. Um, But yeah, not everyone's cup of tea, except when they become adults, they turn into a hoverfly called the dronefly. And that's a really um, important pollinator. But you might also find pond snails, maybe some freshwater mussels, for example. And they do a good job of filtering. So they might pick up little algae particles or um, bits of plant material and filter those out. And also down there, you might find crucian carp, for example. They move around the sediment on the bottom, trying to find little bits of plant. If we go up through the ponds a little bit to the middle... This is where your predators tend to hang out. So your dragonfly larvae, amphibians will be down there too. In terms of fish, you might find things like three-spined sticklebacks, which are really aggressive predators, um, and they eat a a variety of different things. So that could be tadpoles, um, poor old tadpoles. They're the kind of food stuff for a lot of of animals down here. Um, And you might also find a great diving beetle at this point. So really nice oily black, kind of shield-like creature. And they're edged with a sort of yellowy um, border. So they're quite easy to spot. And again, these eat quite a range of things. They might take some tadpoles, some other amphibians, some small fish. So that's in the mid part. As we go up just below the surface, you'll find some of the species there that um, they might need to take air a bit more often. The one that springs to mind is the water scorpion, which isn't a scorpion at all. um, But it has a couple of features that make it look a bit like a scorpion. So on the front it has little pincers, which are used to ambush its prey. At the other end it also has a tail, which looks like it might be a massive stinger, but isn't actually. It's a, it's like a scuba probe, it's there for breathing, so it uses it to poke out through the top of the pond and take on air. You might also find grass snakes just below the surface. So not everybody realises that grass snakes are actually really good swimmers. They don't put their head underwater, they're not a, sne- a sea snake. But yeah, you'll spot their little head poking out. They're amazing. When you see them swimming, it's cool. Yeah, it's really cool, isn't it? Should we move on to the surface? Yeah, why not? Pond skaters. People might be familiar with those guys. They're the ones that look like they're defying logic by being able to float along the surface of water because they've got um, quite hairy feet that repel water. They um, sense vibrations on the water surface and then they'll dash off in pursuit of prey, which they'll stab with their, their pointy beaks. Quite nasty, really. And not dissimilar to that is a, a water measurer, which is basically like a stick insect. So if you see something like that on the surface, that could be what you've got. This is also kind of the territory of things like the lesser water boatmen um, and back swimmers. 
both use their legs like oars. Obviously now uh, at the surface we're looking at birds. So some waterfowl uh, might be on here, a little grebe, mallards, moorhen. Some of those make floating nest islands. It's a real hub of life, isn't it? There's, there's so much going on, absolutely. But, you know, it is just amazing to see, you know, the, the bigger animals which come and, and kind of take refuge in by ponds as well. Like I stepped out my, my back door and I had about four siskins in my pond having a bath, which I thought was quite quite sweet. And I interrupted their bath and felt very bad about it. Uh, but I So I quickly retreated inside to let them continue. The edges of ponds are really great for all sorts of wildlife. Um, so foxes, badgers, hedgehogs, they all need to drink. So if it's safe to do so, they'll come and visit a pond. Um, and we also have, you know, little mammals using the outside. The water shrew um, will burrow into banks of ponds. They'll also dive in and catch their food as well. Yeah, all sorts of stuff from big and little things. Yeah, bats too. Bats are some of my favourite. You know, going out at night time, you see a whole different kind of landscape. It's so busy at night time with the bats coming in and taking all of the insects off the pond. My particular favourite is the Dorbentons, which comes along, uh, you know, the water surface, scoops up its prey using its feet and its tail, and then munches it on the wing. And it's really lovely to watch them. They're just so agile. Yeah, acrobats. It's magic. Back in Oxfordshire, Joe is patiently waiting by the village pond. The hours are passing but there's still no sign of the water voles. Come on, Ratty. Well, though it would be lovely to see one of Britain's beautiful endangered species, there is so much else to watch, and being at a pond for an hour or two is going to do you a lot of good. I usually time my sightings by the fact that a water vole will be out from dusk till dawn and feed roughly every four hours so you can work out the timings. There's a lot of patience needed and and it's partly luck. I love dawn and dusk because they tend to be very quiet usually. I'm quite a shy, quiet person so being with waterfalls suits my... it helps me, you know, it's also a kind of mindfulness um, experience. It's very quiet and calm and to watch them is calming too just watching them go about their lives you know you can forget about your own problems you know um, during June 2020 my husband died suddenly of a heart attack and it was during Covid and lockdown so it was incredibly difficult but having waterfalls as companions and you know just being with them and other wildlife you know like a barn owl uh, which landed on a fence post beside the stream where I was waiting for waterfalls. It just lifts you and takes you out of yourself and you just feel, you know, when I see a waterfall or, or a barn owl or, or a mole swimming across the stream one day, it just, my heart soars and it just changes my whole day and it, the whole day, you know, I'll be walking on air um, in spite of all the problems. So I'm very thankful and full of gratitude to nature. I think we, you know, when you become very stressed in life, when you reconnect with the natural world or with nature, um, it's your home and it's where you feel most at ease. And you know, that's why I love to come to the pond and the beauty of it and the wildlife. 
I can't imagine what it must have been like for Jo during that time, but I am so pleased that she found solace in nature. I have always found that whatever kind of day I'm having, the outdoors will always have something to offer that will boost my spirits. So my parting thought to you is to step outside, no matter the weather. Go and see what you can find. Who knows? You might just get lucky and hear that unmistakable plop in your local wetlands. For more information on ponds and for fascinating nature stories, sign up for emails at www.wt.org.uk and follow WWT on our socials. Waterlands is an 1860 production for WWT. The producer is Melvin Rickaby.